and welcome to the Feed the Ball podcast presented by Golf Digest. This is Derek Duncan, Associate Editor for Architecture at Golf Digest, and this is Episode 66. First, a quick note to new listeners. Thank you for joining the podcast, and if you're on social media, you can keep track of happenings by following me at Feed the Ball. I also hope you'll go to your favorite podcast provider, search for Feed the Ball, and push the subscribe button. And finally, I encourage you to explore the archives, where you'll find, for free, the deep well of fascinating and in-depth discussions with the game's great designers. You can find those past episodes at feedtheball.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. For this episode, episode 66, I'm speaking with Tyler Ray. Throughout the decades, most people got into the profession of golf course architecture with the belief and intention that, if successful, they'd be building new golf courses. The trajectory of golf growth in America and beyond had always shown steady, relentless growth, with every recession followed by some type of boom. The frontiers of golf seemed always open and welcoming and endless. That changed in the early 2000s, when growth slowed and development of new courses ultimately ceased. Ten years later, we continue to suffer a net loss of courses. It's a good year if maybe a dozen new courses open domestically. So if you work in America and you're in the golf design business, you'd better be excited about renovating older courses. Fortunately, there's still a massive inventory of golf in the United States, and all those courses need, or will need, the occasional facelift or refresh. That's where Tyler Ray lives. He began his career working on jobs for a number of diverse designers, including Reese and Robert Trent Jones II, Tom Fazio, Keith Foster, and Corin Crenshaw. Later, he became an associate for Ron Pritchard, one of the pioneers of what we now call restoration, the idea of returning an historic course through the study of documents and photographs as closely as possible to some version of its original past. I highly recommend you listen to my talk with Ron Pritchard in the archives at feedtheball.com, episode 5. It continues to be one of the most engaging and diverse conversations on the podcast. Ray worked with Pritchard on an impressive roster of Golden Age courses, including Donald Ross gems like Franklin Hills in Michigan, Cedar Rapids in Iowa, Minicata in Minnesota, and Portland Country Club in Maine. That training has propelled Ray toward the opening of his own firm and continued work with clubs like Mountain Lake in Florida, a Seth Rayner design, and Rossi's Skokie Country Club in Chicago. He has a large, growing roster of new clients as well, and has developed a reputation for being one of the next generation's most thoughtful, committed renovation and restoration specialists who puts in the work, studies relentlessly, and apparently never sleeps. This was a fun, meandering conversation. As you'll hear, Tyler is an incredibly well-spoken, intelligent guy with a contagious passion for architecture and history. He knows his stuff. We get started, however, in a slightly surprising place, talking about his recent restorative involvement with the work of a perhaps unexpected architect. Let's listen. Here's Tyler Ray. One of the things that I wanted to jump in it, right right off the top because I'm I'm interested to get uh, your perspective and, and all of all of your knowledge about this is you've been involved in and currently involved in a couple of Mike Strand's courses, which I, I'm tickled with that we're to this point now where modern golf courses like a Strand's course is in need of touch up and, and care and, and even restoration, whatever you want to call it. But you're working in in the with his two Myrtle Beach courses. 
uh, True Blue and Caledonia Hunt and Fish Club. What's that experience been like? And what are some of the things that you've noticed going around and working on his golf courses that made him so unique? Yeah, Mike Strands was a genius. And and the word genius is overused, but gosh, it really did. I mean, he really was a genius when you think about it. His The way he moved dirt through a site, you know, at Caledonia, I mean, it's 96 acres or 94 acres, and it's a square. And the way he routed it and moved dirt and had ponds and on the same hole twice, or you never feel like you see another hole. But um, working on strands courses is probably the most satisfying work that I get to do in my career. How can uh, that be? So far. Um, what happened and what you inspired in my, my lifetime was my father and I, my father was a diehard. He played golf as much as he could. And same with both of my grandfathers. And we would travel when I was young, when I was growing up from eight to 18 and we would go see all of Mike Strands' golf courses. And so I've seen every one and we would play them multiple times a year in Virginia. Sorry um, to interrupt, in, but that seems, that seems kind of, um, abnormal that, that somebody yeah. would travel around just at that time in that point in time to go see, seek out Mike Strand's, uh, courses yeah. for, uh, for you, like a young guy, like what, what did you guys know about Strand's and how did you get turned on to him? Yeah, we, um, we played everything in Philadelphia and Delaware and you would know immediately a great course from a you know a poor one or a different routing and all that but we stumbled upon my father has a golf group he went to wake forest and had a golf group i think it's now 40 years they've been playing all together and they meet twice a year and they do pinehurst uh one time a year and then myrtle beach another time so he knew of uh caledonia i think it was built in 92 i want to say or 94 that sounds right um, but he knew of yeah, he knew of Caledonia and True Blue. Yeah, True Blue was 96. I think Caledonia opened in 94, built in 93. So my father knew of them from the early 90s because they played them right when they were open. And then in 99, 2000, 2001, when Tobacco Road was built, they were going up there during their Piners trips. So he knew about Mike Strands from the, you know, from the onset and was like, hey, man, like, you got to see these, Tyler. Like, these courses are incredible incredible you know my golf group they either love them or hate them but most of them love you know and even if you do hate them you love them the second time and so uh they found that his group because my father would plan the trips that was his thing he would plan them every year for both the trips and he found out that when he would get the um kind of list from the guys or what the input you know the feedback they were constantly saying oh let's go back to caledonia oh we love true blue fairways are wide it's generous but still really thoughtful you know and and really intriguing and so it wasn't where those guys were just like out there drinking beers they were starting to think about golf a little more whereas some of the courses were pretty mundane at myrtle beach and and even around piners at that time um but uh so he knew about him from the onset and then we would in the late nineties, uh, we just like every summer we'd do a couple of little trips, just he and I, uh, and they were incredible where we'd go to tobacco road and then we'd go up to Tothill in uh, North Carolina, which was, they were drastically different. Tothill farm is like a mountain golf course. And then mm-hmm. obviously tobacco road is all sandy and really, really cool exposed you know, waste areas everywhere. And then we would do Stonehouse in rural New Kent in Virginia. Cause that was only about three and a half hour drive from our house growing up. Um, and then we'd go down to Myrtle beach and do those two. And so, cause he would do these, te- you know, teams of two. 
um, and then Bulls Bay and Charleston. Uh, so we kind of followed his career and, and uh, I wrote him letters back in the day and I've met his family, his wife, Heidi and uh, his kids or his daughters. And um, so finally I had a call from Caledonia a couple years ago, maybe three or four years ago. And um, they got my name from Bob Raynham, who was at Atlantic golf club in the Hamptons. And Bob has a house down in Washesaw plantation on, um, in uh, just south of Myrtle, in uh, not Pauly's Island, but it's um, gosh, what is that down there? It's kind of right down by Caledonia and all that. Um, but he uh, he said, hey, I think Caledonia is interested in maybe you know doing a little tea work, and they're going to remove some trees and uh, get back some more of the strands. And so what happened? It was it was exactly what I had been taught and trained with the architects I was working with in the past, it was ironic. It's like you go to a strands course that was built in 94 Caledonia. And it's the same thing as a Ross course from the twenties or a Rainer or a Flynn. Okay. The trees have crept in over the last 30 years and the, you know, the grass types have really migrated. The fairways have shifted in because the trees have shifted in and all the greens have become circles now and strands big scale has all shrunken. So the T's are all kind of beat up and the car paths need to be repaired and the bunkers are all now almost circular. They've lost old uh, lacy edge shape. The greens are circles. And so you get down to Caledonia and true blue and it's like, Oh wow, we need to push these greens back to their old dimensions. We need to fix some of these bunker edges that had some of these beautiful, you know, horizon lines and all the washouts over the years, they'd become, you know, a shell of their former self. And, uh, and the teas, you know, we're all overgrown and, you know, now let's open everything up. Let's get the growth back. So I've rebuilt a lot of teas, rebuilt a lot of bunkers, um, push greens out, got the fairway lines pushed back out. So it's just the same type of stuff that I've, you know, been doing with older clubs. Kind of ironic. <laughs> you spent so much of your, of your life really, and your working career working on courses that were built, you know, before 1940, I would say, you know, something in that time period. And now you're working with some architecture that is really like abstract in a way, you know, it's a comes from a completely different way, at least visually, at least the things that you can touch and move and shape and work on. How do you, I mean, do you see similarities between the two or was Mike Strands in his, in all these expressions, thinking in a in a new way about golf what did you take away from like being hands-on with his golf courses yeah you know they're still the underlying same principles really um you know a lot of his greens are perched up with the bunkers cut in deeply underneath for that effect you know for that grandeur um rarely he has one or two punch bowl greens you know, on a golf course, I mean, actually probably only a handful. He's probably only built five punch bowls, but I can think of a couple. But mostly they were these perch greens that were sitting above grade a little bit with bunkers undercut or mounding, you know, trundling down. And so he had a lot of, you know, antiquated world concepts that he would utilize. But he would take them to the next level a little bit. He'd have, he'd take the cape hole and almost make it a boomerang, you know, like a true blue on the, what is it? One, two, three, fourth hole. It's a big boomerang par five. And then he replicated that at tobacco road. Yeah. Like the the par five. Yeah. 
Yeah, the big, big part five, and it just keeps turning, you know, but it creates options the whole time because the closer you get to the lake, the closer your shot is on the second shot, and maybe you can go for it in two, Uh, but it's all angles, and it's just like the K-pole, you know, the old world design that Rainer McDonald, you know, instilled at National Golf Links, and so, um, you know, so a lot of his, he'd he'd always have a Redan, Uh, he'd always have almost a barrette screen on, on, um, golf course the punch bowl you know the cape and so he would utilize a lot of old school features and so they would be old you know his his work has a lot of old school that resonates but it would just be a little softer shaping um bigger mounding um he mounted a lot of things up to hide you know to give you enclosure on holes but that's kind of what he learned from uh, working with fazio for a bunch of years in the 80s you know, with wild dunes and all that, where he would learn that, you know, he wanted each hole to be its own area. So he didn't have a lot of what the older architects would incorporate, where you would see layers of holes sometimes. When you're hitting downhill on a par three, you see three other holes in the distance, you know, on a Ross course or a Rainer or or Flynn and, you know, Colt course. Um, Like Sunningdale knew uh, one of Colt's best, you know, they built in 1920. It's like, uh, you see layers of holes everywhere out there, you know, but with strands, you would really get broken out one hole. It was like each hole was its own room. Um, so he would, you know, tobacco road, same thing. You only, you're only on the hole that you see. Um, but they're all spectacular. And he, he, and then he took that the next level of artistry and architecture where he would scare you off the tee. You know, he would try to scare you with big landforms and scary deep bunkers, but then you would get, you know, you'd hit over the horizon line and you wouldn't see a fairway. It'd be a blind fairway, you know, like number one at Tobacco Road, there's these two 80 foot dunes mm-hmm. and you think the fairway is 10 yards wide, like Bally Bunyan or something. And you hit out there or, or really like Karn, you know, Bell Mullet, like in Ireland, you think the fairway is nothing. And then you hit over the hill and fairway is 140 yards wide. You know, you couldn't miss it if you tried. And so a lot of Strand's uh, artistry was really cool and, and how he tried to scare you. And, and you know, even hitting into the greens, they look so scary. But then you get up there and you're like, there's so much room up here. So I think that was brilliant with his uh, architecture. You know, it was like a different yeah, that's the that's the so, way you hear from so many people is that his golf courses are, are can be brutally tough, and I never got that. I never thought that his golf courses were very no. difficult. In fact, I thought they were like really playable. Yeah. Now you'd have to be right. you'd have to be pretty good around the greens. You know, you have to be able to chip and putt a little bit to, if you want to get a decent score and get the ball in the hole because there's a lot to think about <laughs> and a lot of a lot of shapes to have to maneuver around. But it's that's not the kind of stuff that beats you up and, and makes you uh, feel like you just got your ass kicked or the course was difficult. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. His wide corridors, his massive fairways really helped players off the tee. And then uh, his scale, even with the greens, his scale was big, six, seven, eight thousand square foot greens um, and big bunkers to boot. But they usually weren't extremely difficult. There were there was one course that he built called Stonehouse. Uh, that was a sister course to Royal New Kent in Williamsburg or just outside Williamsburg. And that was you did miss the fairway. It was almost gone, but the fairways were massive. But I've played that a bunch and it's kind of closed right now. I think they're trying to bring it back or just did. It's in limbo. But uh mm-hmm. you know, if you missed the fairway, it was almost a lost ball. 
um, because it was a mountainous golf course and very hilly. But the fairways were very generous. And so I always felt like if you hit the fairway, you could score really well. And so you'd either shoot 75 or 90. (laughs) (laughs) If you were hitting it pretty well, you could score really well. But if if you missed it by a wide margin, you were really, oof, it was scary. So one of the questions that I think about a lot is if he hadn't have passed away in 2005, how would he have developed as an architect? You, and and the the touch point to consider is his work at, at Monterey Peninsula Club, which was uh, it was a remodel, but and it was a little bit of a departure from the stuff that he was doing on the East Coast. It wasn't quite as outlandish. It really fit in with that beautiful landscape, and it makes you wonder if if he would have sort of calmed down a little bit. And did he get a lot of that, that stuff out of his system with Tobacco Road uh, and, and uh, Bulls Bay and things like that? What do you, where do you think he would have gone if he'd have continued to design? Which would be interesting yeah, also because, that's, that's you know, new work would have, would have dried up and would he, have, would he be in the conversation at, these, at, at the Bandon Dunes and, and the, the Sand Valleys? Would he be on that level or would he be doing more Monterey Peninsula stuff and, and renovations and restorations like you're doing? Oh, that's a great question, you know, Derek. I think he, I think at some point you get beat up, you get so beat down from the comments. I mean, even in my young career, I've built some really bold stuff and the comments just wear you out because people, people just always want to, you know, if something's really bold, it, it kind of it's not normal. And it's like, oh, that gives me unsettling. That gives me unsettled feeling. But it's really good. You know, bold is the best work. You know, be bold. Like, like uh, Robert Frost always says, you know, the freedom lies in being bold. And uh, so he was so bold. And I think, yeah, he was being more tempered out on the West Coast, you know, at Monterey Peninsula, because he was probably just tired of hearing the comments. And so, yeah, and, and then the wind, too. The wind is so hard out there. I think he took that in a note that, you know, you get the wind off the Pacific Ocean, you can't have too many bold features there or else it will be unplayable. Uh, so that was probably a factor. But I would see him probably – there's always a club or two each year that wants to blow everything up and they don't care about their history and they just want something new and great. So I think he would fit in that model where there are a lot of courses that you know, they might have some heritage, they might have some Ross bones or something else, but it may be one of Ross's worst courses and nothing's really – he would probably fit that mold where they bring him in and spend $10 million and just, hey, let's start from scratch. Maybe give us a little bit of Ross flavor or Flint flavor, but you know, you have carte blanche to reroute it type thing. He would fit in that mold and then – he would have had to be in the conversation for the Cabots and the stream songs. And, you know, because that's where, what he was building was high fee, you know, high daily fee public courses in the nineties. And I mean, gosh, he was voted one of the top 10 architects of all time, I think in 2000. So <laughs> he was at it, but then he slowed down. He pretty much, I think he turned down every job from 2001 on because he had that throat cancer. So we just don't know what happened. And then Doke, that opened up the door a lot more for Doak because Doak did, you know, Pacific Dunes in 99. And then his career was really starting to take off. And then same with Corn Crenshaw. I've been doing a lot of good stuff, but they really jumped. And then so did, uh, you know, Gil, um, you know, at the tail end of that, more of like 07 onward. Um, but it's, it's uh, yeah, it's always something you think about. It's so sad that he passed away so early. I think it was 52, you know, which is unheard of. 
So, you know, and then, and really the last four years, he wasn't doing too, too much. He was doing Monterey Peninsula and then he was doing, um, the other golf course in Southern California. Uh, it slips my mind right now. Um, something Creek, but, uh, he, he did a lot of work out there and, uh, but yeah, from Oh one, Oh two on Oh three on, it was really, you know, that was it. Yeah, that was it. Um, so you mentioned, um, Growing up in the uh, northern Delaware, Philadelphia area, um, first of all, like that, and, and then going to play Mike Strand's courses. But if if you grow up in that environment and you had um, were able to play around that area a little bit, that had to really color how you view golf course architecture. I would imagine just being around all, oh, for all sure, the, those for sure. the courses with that lineage and that architectural pedigree that's just all around you from so many different sources. Yeah the the old stately country club mansions you know the old clubhouses sitting on the high part of the property looking over you know a great golf course like huntington valley with the big clubhouse looking down over the big valley you know that is what i always um kind of think about when i think about philadelphia golf you know the land is so so underrated in philadelphia the the topography the hills every golf course i mean there's really no flat golf courses in philadelphia and so the land is really really wild almost like San Francisco-esque, you know, when you play um, Olympic, you know, everything's side hill and uphill uh, in San Francisco Golf Club. It's very, you know, they're very, um, very similar. Uh, but then you don't really get that up in New York and Long Island. Long Island has some big rolling hills and, you know, like Huntington and stuff like that and Piping Rock but um, and Creek. But um, for the most part, it's a little flatter, you know, more like Shinnecock where it's rolling hills. Um, and not too crazy and steep, but Philadelphia gets really steep in a lot of parts and, and the golf courses were expertly routed because the game, there were so many brilliant minds around the Philadelphia area, you know, with Tillinghast and Crump and Flynn and Hugh Wilson. I mean, gosh, I mean, those guys were just all prevalent, you know, and Travis spent a ton of time in Philadelphia and, and Deborah Emmett, you know, being out in New York city, he was in Philadelphia all the time. And, um, same with, um, Finley, you know, Alex Finley, more and more I read about him. He's, you know, he was in Boston and Philadelphia and New York, you know, that scene. So really all the great old architects who were basically, you know, out of, and, and, uh, and Perry Maxwell, who were basically out of the Midwest, um, and maybe Alistair McKenzie, who kind of came over after all Woodley and everything and kind of hovered around and lived in California and everything like that. Um, but mainly, most of them were Philadelphia guys or New York guys. And, uh, you know, even Ross, I mean, Ross had J.B. McGovern based out of Wynwood, which is pretty much Marion. Um, and that was his right hand guy. And he did a ton of work in the Mid-Atlantic and Philadelphia, you know, region. There's the there's the the old term like the Philadelphia School of Architecture. Is to me that's just that's a it's just um just a blanket statement about these guys who happen to be based or or coming out of Philadelphia. Am I missing something? Is there a, a something to to the a school which would mean a defined thing that they shared in common other than just a location, like an idea set or something that can be passed along. Or, you know, you think of like Bauhaus or something, a movement that had very strong mm-hmm. tenets and uh, people were working under the same philosophy. Was there any kind of guiding principle like that amongst the architects that you're aware of? 
No, no. I think it was just the uh, camaraderie between them all. I mean, they would all play winter golf down in Atlantic City and ride the train down there. And reading all the old articles, it's fascinating from about 1910 to 1930. You know, they were all friendly and, um, you know, they loved going up against each other for a job. And that, I think, pushed them. You know, that really pushed them to think outside the box and create greatness. Because you think about Tillinghast, he was building Somerset Hills in 1914 while he was writing and watching Pine Valley develop and was one of the founding members there. Mm-hmm. And then and then watching Marion develop with Hugh Wilson and then Flynn changing it a couple times, you know, pretty cool. And then watching, um, you know, Travis come in and have his take on things and, and then Colt, you know, watching him come over and give all those directions at Pine Valley because they all really respected Colt as like the guy, you know, Willie Park kind of preceded Colt with, uh, you know, Sunningdale's old, you know, 1899, 1900. So it was really like Willie Park, then Colt. And then uh, some of these guys like Ross, Tillinghast, you know, then Flynn, stuff like that. I mean, so, so they, they would respected. Have been, they would have been familiar with Colt. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They they were very in tune with what was going on overseas uh-huh. and how he kind of grew up, you know, being a young guy, young solicitor at Rye, and then taking over as secretary at Sunningdale, and booming. I mean, just getting everything from like 1907 on. You know, over there. And Willie Park had been so busy over there from 1895 with Mungo Park and his father, Willie Park Sr., that he then emigrated, you know, over here in early 1900s and then really took off over here. And it was really like Willie Park Jr., Finley, and then obviously the Johnny Appleseed of golf, um, Bendelo. And they would just lay out courses, you know, mainly, you know, Bendelow would just lay them out, be there for a couple hours and then roll. And then Ross and these guys would come in and revise them in the early 1900s. But they all knew each other. They were all Scots and, and had some sort of British, obviously, background. And, um, yeah, they were all friendly and pretty cool to see, you know, how they were working. And But they all were, they were all trying out new things, work. It didn't and and being really really outside the box and really bold you know really really bold and, and kind of it was becoming our art form and a big career because they all came over really as professionals you know they were all players and i say come over but you know tilling us grew up here but um but ross came over and ben all those guys came over park and all that really to teach golf and make more money it was all about money coming over you know teach golf give lessons and club make. And then it kind of came into, well, we've got this game that's growing and we have baseball and all that, but it's, it was becoming a big pastime. And then they realized, Oh shoot, we can make a lot of money being architects. You want me to actually lay out your golf course. I can do that. Sure. Yeah. We actually have fun. Like that's actually, so, so that was like one of, Hey, here are our services, teaching club making, ball making and course layout. That was like their fourth service. And then it almost flipped and went back. You know, because Spalding and all all the companies kind of took over club making um, from 1910 and 12 and 15 on. So they kind of lost the club making stuff that kind of got the industry took that over. And then they realized, well, the professional thing is cool, but there's really no money having professional tournaments and playing, you know, like going down to Florida to play Alex Finley in some tournament, a duel 
there's only so much money in that. But golf courses are growing at an incredible rate. I could be a golf architect. And so that was like the common, you know, that was, I mean, Ross came over to teach golf, you know, at Oakley. And then he was a greenkeeper, you know, hey, well, you're also our teacher, but can you help us fix the links, you know, and, and make them better? And then that really jumped for him. He realized that, wow, golf in America was booming. And so it was all timing for those guys. So was somebody like Alex Findlay, was he, do you think he was just more like a Bendelow character? Like he would, cause you mentioned he was in Florida. I, I think, you know, I've heard that he laid out some courses down there and I think the, he might've done the original, uh, Biltmore, uh, hotel in, mm-hmm. um, in, uh, Palm beach. And mm-hmm. he also, one of the, one of the very first golf courses that I ever played, maybe the first golf course where I ever swung and hit a golf ball, golf ball on a golf course and not on a driving range or anything is, was in Butte, Montana. The Butte Country Club alleges that he laid out their first course. I don't think it's the same course anymore, but so he's, he's from South Florida up into the Western Rockies up in the Northeast and who knows where okay. else along the way. I mean, is he just, you know, sticking stakes in the ground like you hear Bendela doing and then, you know, somebody else would start building it and he'd never see it again. Exactly. He was like halfway in between Ross because Ross was like a design build firm, obviously, and they would have contractors help him out. But uh, he, was, he wasn't Bendelow. Bendelow was literally just putting stakes in and not even watching anything, not mm-hmm. even building any greens. You never know. I mean, most of Bendelow's stuff was just right on the ground. You know, greens at grade, no push-up. Finley did get into the push-up scene, he and Robert White. Um, but they're, he and Robert White, his courses, their courses are pretty basic, very, you know, back to front greens, pretty steep, um, very basic layouts, but still pretty good. Um, but nothing really, really detailed, nothing with incredible amount of character. So they were kind of like the blend. It was like, Hey, you know, we're the Walmart of Donald Ross, you know, Hey, we'll do it for half his price kind of thing. You know, that's what I kind of feel the more and more I learn, the more and more I see of Finley and uh, versus Ross or Tilly or, or, you know, stuff like that. You know, whereas Tilly has to do these incredible plans and same with um, Flynn, you know, and Flynn was pretty much designed uh, with Toomey, his construction associate. And, uh, and same with Ross, he had his three his three main guys who would oversee construction as much as they could. And they were engineers and at least build really bold green you know with some great character and uh the routings always had a lot of thought um but yeah 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 so there were so many different levels you know and same with robert white he was mainly he was mainly a pro who got in the design build and built courses for ross and then designed a lot because there's so much work to go around from 1916 to 30 you know when the stock market crash happened and the great depression you know the onslaught of that but uh you have so, so, so many of it's those so guys interesting to think about that that period and we we tend to focus really exclusively almost on the designers but i mean you, right. we all know it takes a long time to build a golf course and there ha- there are a lot of moving parts and I, I and i know there were golf course construction companies especially as you got into the 20s but pr- probably not everywhere and probably not in a lot of places so like when you're going out west and these architects are coming through town they might have been turning over construction and this long multi-month process of building and seeding and growing in a golf course to 
in some cases, maybe people who had no experience doing that before. Mm-hmm. I always wonder, like, so, I mean, I think where you were in the country might have had a, a huge impact on how these golf courses turned out. Yeah, 100%. You know, how close you were to city centers and all that and populations. You know, most of these courses were country clubs built out in the countryside. You know, and the, the whole automobile from 1908 onward when the Model T, 1907 when the Model T was introduced, that helped the boom, you know, of country clubs. And, and I mean, gosh, because it was mainly rail car up until 1907, 08. And then the Model T, everybody started driving cars, you know, in the teens out to these clubs. But, yeah, like firms like Styles and Van Cleek, you know, in the 20s and, and Lankford and Moreau and Stanley Thompson and all these other architects that, you know, in the top 25, I mean, they all took off. But, yeah, I mean, the, the clip that they were building clubs at, you know, so many thousands a year. Where did they get all these guys? But they were mainly laborers, and they would throw like 200 guys at a project, you know, 250 guys, and just slowly, methodically build hole by hole and lay tile pipe, you know, that was by piece by piece. You know, they dig the ditches by hand and then lay these pieces, um, these clay round tile hexagonal pipe, and then put tar paper over them. You know, so it's like unbelievable how they would uh, slowly build these things, but they would, you know, and move dirt. I don't know. I still, it just, it's so it blows, it, mind-boggling. It, yes, it is mind-boggling, especially when you think about how what you just said, how many golf courses were being built. And we know that so we know that Ross had a couple of guys, you know, Hatch and McGovern, and he had um, Hughes out in Colorado and, and some other guys in different, you know, Mabel's as far as North Carolina work to help. But think about how much, we always talk about how much Donald Ross moves about. But McGovern, he in any given year, he might have had, 30 golf courses going at the same time he couldn't have been there at those courses more than once or twice a year probably and same with hatch so there's such a i think there's a lot we don't really understand about the chain of command like did they have Mm -hmm. uh people who lived on site to run the crew you know because like you know as we said these guys at the top of the pyramid are only popping in now and again if at all so somebody must be running the show. Did they have, do you know, did they have people who, like today, like you, like yourself, who would uh, specialize in, in shaping and, and making bunkers and other guys who, who specialized in, in floating out greens or, or, you know, do we know how that worked in the 19-teens and 1920s? Yeah, I know uh, the more we read and the more we uncover, I do know that, you know, like Perry Maxwell had a couple guys that he really, really liked. One was this guy named Claude. I can't remember his last name. I have it written down somewhere, but he had a couple guys who were really great at green building for him and he would always use. And they pretty much worked under his umbrella, you know, and then same with Ross. He, he would always bring over Scots, you know, Scottish gentlemen he knew from the past and instill them at the club as the greenkeeper and in charge of the project. So at like Monroe golf club in Rochester, New York, uh, he had a guy, Jim Connaughton, who he brought over, like, right off the boat, but knew he knew grass. He had, you know, worked at a bunch of courses in Scotland. And so he was like, hey, Jim, you're going to run construction. And it was all it was all in the field notes. You know, hey, Jim's running construction. Jamie McGovern's going to be there, you know, for three days a month type thing. And they had a construction contract with Monroe. And JB was paid from the club, and Ross was paid for the plans. And Ross came in, like, twice during construction. JB was there couple days a month and then Jim ran the project and grew it all in. And then you see that that 
the architecture instilled in that property was pretty classy. It's pretty bold. It's, it's really nice. And you can see that there were some good guys on that job, you know, really talented individuals. And so I always say to clubs, you know, before we're going to do a project, it's like it always, you always need two or three really individual, you know, really talented individuals on a project or else it's going to go nowhere. And so, you know, the old way in the seventies and eighties and nineties of, Hey, here's the plans and go hire a contractor and we'll see if we get a great golf course. That is so far out the window now because you didn't know who you were going to get. And so now we know the construction teams and I have guys who I like to work with and who are talented. And then I spend an incredible amount of time on site and personally shape a lot of it. But then the superintendent's very, very hands-on usually and very important. So it's usually like now the superintendent is, is one of the main guys who has to be really talented. Me as a shaper or architect has to be on site a lot. And then, we have to have one or two guys from the construction team who are running the project from the construction side and then seeing the overall quality control. So guys like Doak and Corn Crenshaw, they bring their own guys, which I kind of am starting to do. Um, and they oversee quality control because those go, those, there's your two or three really talented guys. So like Dormy Club, when I built that with Corn Crenshaw, you know, 708, 09, they had Jimbo Wright who was building greens and who had his own bulldozer who had, pretty much worked for Corn Crenshaw since Kapalua in 89. He brought and his own Jim, bulldozer? <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, wherever wherever the job was, he brought his own dozer. Awesome. And it was, like, impeccable, you know. And then <laughs> um, we had uh, Jeff Bradley, who mainly did bunkers for them, and they called him the Bunker Guru. And mm-hmm. he's, un- he's probably the most talented shaper in, in the world. Um, and then we had a couple other guys, like myself, who were editing and edging bunkers and getting the sand line or you know sand lines and grassing lines right and the detail work um the finish work and and uh and that's how those old courses were built but just at a much larger scale you know they were instead of us building dormy and maybe two others that year with corn crenshaw they were building probably five times that amount so they were building yeah like ross built 39 courses he had 39 projects in 1921. That was his busiest year. Uh, 33 new courses, six reconstructions, and then one was just like uh, nip and tuck and some greens. But 39 projects is still insane. And so if we were doing three in <laughs> 2007 08, he was doing 33 new ones. So can you imagine the level of disparity between the ones where the good guys spent the time and the really talented crew members versus you know, the ones maybe like you say, we started this conversation five minutes ago on maybe those ones that were a little further from the city centers and out somewhere, you know, no man's land got a lot less attention. So say like Cedar Rapids is a Ross course from 1915. Mm -hmm. It's drastically different than Skokie, which was built in 1914, 1915, same exact almost year. Um, And Skokie had so much more detail in the greens and so much more bold character. Whereas, Cedar Rapids had about, you know, I would say like four or five really standout Ross features when I got there in 2010. And it hadn't been really blown up too much. So there's a lot that could go into that. And and, and it might be the, you know, the, the execution wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't executed the way Ross might have expected it when he walked away for 100%. the last time, you know, or, or if he, whenever the last time he saw it was, he probably thought it was going to turn out with the same level of detail or would have hoped 
that it would have had the same level of detail as, as Skokie or whatever else he was working on. But the people on the ground just didn't have the ability, perhaps, to, to make it happen. That's exactly right. Yeah, it, it all comes down, and what I always say to clubs, it comes down to the, the guys, the, the people in the dirt. And as talented as a golf architect can be and have a great vision, if it doesn't get implemented properly, if you don't have really good people on site, you know, it just doesn't matter. And so, you know, that's kind of where I hang my head on. You know, when I interview my clubs, I say, look, I'm, I have a lot less work than most of these really, really, really um, busy architects. You know, I might have 30 clients and they might have 70, you know, or in the case of Gil, he might have 120, who knows, but, um, but I'm going to spend the time there making the decisions. And so I actually just got off the phone today with Beverly country club and just finished their project pretty much like at snowfall, uh, December 1st. And I was like, Hey, you know, when do you need me back? You know, yada, yada. Um, what do we need to, you know, there's probably a couple things we need to button up. And the superintendent was like, it looks so good. He's like, I don't know how it, it came through winter so great, but he's like there, I only need probably a day of your time. Um, and he was like, you were here four or five days from July 30th to Christmas. So he's like, you spent so much time here. There's like hardly anything really to finish. <laughs> it's great. He's like, I just want to grow it in. And, you know, um, it just might be a two days of your time in the spring, you know, just to nip and tuck and, and, and really make it shine. And I was, I, I thought to myself, well, that's great. Cause I can move on to other stuff. Also, it's like, that four to five days a week, all those flights, I probably had 40 flights, you know, to and from Chicago, you know, for that four month, five month span, but it was all worth it. And now the club is going to have something that really, really spectacular, probably my best work to date. And, you know, a lot of character, a lot of intricate details, old wrinkled faces and, you know, beautiful putting surfaces and um, big corridors, playing corridors. You know, it looks like 1919 when Ross built it. So, uh, it'll be really stunning. And so, but you know, but, um, that, uh, you know, is a testament to, it's just all comes down to time and how much time you spend on these sites. And it's so funny that, and, you know, over the, in the eighties and nineties and into the early two thousands, you know, I think the architectural community would lambast, you know, Nicholas design or, or whoever for having 15, 20 projects going at the same time. And what Ross had, had that and more, in his day and you know he wasn't spending any more you know he might show up at a course on, at, at best unless it was in pinehurst or north carolina you know he might pop in a couple right. times it would just same as nicholas mm-hmm. you know nicholas would pop into a course but we, we i guess so what that tells me is that the difference is one of the big differences is that ross was probably getting pretty good land to work with any and, he, and mm-hmm. the courses that nicholas company was were building were maybe you know compromised by real estate components so he wasn't getting like mm-hmm. these great pure properties the courses might have turned out so we judge by the end product but we also uh criticize the volume as, as well so if, if nicholas would have had 20 core courses going on i think we might look at his his body of work a little bit differently than we do now yeah the only thing i would say derek and this is probably the main point if you think about anything in life, decisions almost always come down to money. Um, how many buggers are we going to do? Oh, how, you know, everything always comes down to the bottom line. Even with my projects now, it's like, well, 2.1, can we beat it down to 1.8? You know, oh, that's a lot. You know, or, or 6.5 you know, 6. right now. Can we get it down to 5.5? But 
Ross gave an incredible amount of value for his projects because they wouldn't move that much dirt. So I think it's it's a, a really difficult question because, yes, they had better land um, in the pick of the lot, the pick of the litter. Um, yes, they were encumbered by technology like aka there was a lot less technology and a lot less earth moving equipment but that actually helped them because they moved a lot less dirt their features were bolder they didn't have to tie everything in and shape t to green they would really only build the bunkers cut fill cut the cavity for the bunker and then fill the shoulders mm -hmm. so those were just small little cuts and then the greens were usually he would mine out some drainage ditches, you know, through golf courses in Florida or the South or, you know, I, he, he had an incredible proclivity for draining a golf course. Cause of course that was paramount. Like Pete, I used to say 90% of a golf course is drainage, you know? And so, um, he would do big drainage ditches and then that would create the dirt for the green pads and the fill pads. And they would only really move that dirt. And then the tees were kind of maybe only built up a foot off a grade. So they would do these golf courses and put 200 guys on them and finish it in like four months, but only move 5,000, you know, 10,000 cubic yards. Whereas then Nicholas, okay, they got worse land, so we can't knock them on that. Sometimes, sometimes they got really great land on some projects I've seen, you know, out, out in the West and everything where it was still undeveloped. But, yeah. um, but then they would move a million cubic yards was, which is incredible amount, you know, and create big lakes for irrigation and this and that. And, um, you know, Ross, they never build irrigation lakes cause they didn't have irrigation, you know, right. and, uh, <laughs> they would just pull it out of those drainage ditches and hope that, you know, mother nature would keep her alive. And so there are a couple factors there, but it is odd that we, we downgrade some of these other architects who did the same thing as Ross, but you know, Ross's quality was still pretty high. Um, it's hard to find, I mean, yeah, out of his 430 or whatever that, the, you know, the number finally is coming out to, I mean, almost every day we're finding more Ross courses as guys do more and more research. It was losing, like losing some too. A There's while. a lot of golf courses that have been thought to be Rosses. Like 60 are already NLE, like gone. So instead of 420, like I'm saying, it's probably 360. Mm -hmm. There's probably 350 right now, um, alive, but out of those 350, there's only, um, and there's like 180 that are really, really worth visiting. And there are so many that I've been disappointed to see. I was just in Florida for 10 days. Um, and I have 24 left, 24 raw scores left to see out of his whatever, 360. And I had 34 until two weeks ago, but I saw 10 more in Florida. Um, and I was just so d disappointed that all of them had been blown up and reworked. And really, there was no Ross left. Like which, which ones? Um, Gosh, so I saw um, Fort Myers Country Club and Bradenton Country Club, Sarah Bay, Bel Air, um, Dundeen, mm -hmm. or Dunedin, I think it's called Dunedin. Um, uh, there's two courses at Bel Air, and then um, Palmasia. Those are about um, to get redone, too. Yeah, Bel Air's going to get blown up, So, but there's nothing left there anyway, so it doesn't matter to me <laughs> anymore. But uh, the old photos I have all... Well, it could be it could be put back. That were really bold, but I, I don't think so. it's I don't think it's I going to be. So. Yeah, I just don't know. I don't know. Yeah, every architect has their own thought of what restoration renovation is. <laughs> of course, <laughs> which is scary. 
it's whatever they no. whatever they want to call it while they're working on it. Right, right. That buzzword of restoration is oh, terribly overused. Mm-hmm. So, but those are the ten that I saw. Um, uh, and, and then Bobby Jones too. So that was the, the other one. But so I saw those ten that I hadn't really seen before. Um, and I went over to Seminole and I went down to Biltmore in Miami and Riviera. Um, so I really got around, but, um, I had never really seen all the Florida Ross because I knew they were all blown up. So I, I had, they weren't on my really, really high list. So, but now I just need to, I needed to see them to cross them off the list because, you know, everybody wants to say that they've seen everything. <laughs> it, it's really funny what's happened in my career where I used to come in and, 10 years ago when I would walk courses and people would look at me really funny and, Oh, what are you doing? You're so young. Why are you here? And now people, it's kind of cool. People here have heard of my name. <laughs> so I, I show up to these courses and they're like, Oh yeah, I've seen you on Twitter. Can I ride around with you? <laughs> can I, can I walk the course with you? So every club I visited, everybody was so nice. It was really different for me. Uh, Cause usually if I'm over walking courses in Europe or Australia or um, the British Isles, no one's ever heard of me, but, um, but it's pretty cool now. Uh, I don't know how they've heard of me. But there must it, be a uh, point like that in everybody's life when they, things like that happen to you and, and you realize, Oh, I'm the, I'm the grown up now, you know, I'm, the, I, yeah. and then when you think about it, you're like, you're like, well, I do actually have quite a bit of experience and I kind of know what I'm doing. So I guess <laughs> I'm that guy now, <laughs> but it's weird when you yeah, go through so for the first time. Cool. No, yeah. So that that uh that was really pleasant, and um, and you know, and then people give you so much more of their time. You know, they're like, oh, well, I, I, you know, I've read our history book, and I know this and this, and then they start telling you details, which actually help a lot. You know, like at Palmasia, these guys came out and walked around with me, and they knew all the history and what Bobby Weed had done in the early two thousands, and they were like we know for a fact Ross was never here. He never showed up. And I was like, how do you know that? And they were like, well, in our minutes, we couldn't find it anywhere. And we think it, we were just a mailing job. And I was like, wow. You know, and then you go to Dunedin and they're like, oh no, no, Ross was here. You know, we have it, you know, on site that he was here, um, this and that. And it was cool, very cool. And people are really interested. And But that's the change though in architecture and, and where we're at today. There's so much information available now with publications um, I spent I spend so many nights in my office going through old publications and looking at old um, letters and stuff from Ross and correspondence, um, and it's so cool to see um, if he had in fact visited a site or if he didn't or what he was thinking and and reading all about his time in Florida, like he worked from twenty four, twenty five, twenty six down in Florida a lot around Sarasota in Tampa because it was blowing up at that point, but he predicted the land speculation down there about 10 months in advance. You know, he was so worried about everybody. Everybody was buying up property and then trying to resell it for value yeah. and more money. And um, there's a book that just came out about that. Yeah. That yeah, period he in Florida, right well, before the bubble burst. Exactly. And so he kind of knew and had a lot of trepidation about signing more clients, clients in Florida. And so his work, it's funny. You look at his, he worked at like Bel Air in 1915 and Biltmore and and some clubs. Uh, Fort Myers was one of his first ones down there in 1917. And then there was like a little blip where he doesn't really work in Florida again until um, like 1923, 24. And then it, and then he's down there and he works at like 
15 courses from 24 to 27. And then it's like done, you know, the land speculation happened. And then his last final work was Seminole in 29. That was like his last thing down there. And uh, obviously he spent an incredible amount of time down there and um, had really talented guys building that for him uh, because he knew it was special. He had seen almost everything in Florida. He knew Florida was so flat and devoid of character, but Seminole probably he knew was the best property in Florida. So he put a lot of effort into that. So I think when Ross, as I see most of his work, when he saw a property that was special, he devoted somebody from his crew, J.B. McGovern, Walter B. Hack, or Walter Irving Johnson, and he denoted that, okay, hey, guys, this is a really special property. And he put one of those good guys on it to make sure there was a great outcome. And then he would visit probably a little more, you know, make it a priority. So you can kind of see where he would almost, because his, his way he worked, and I don't want to go into a rabbit hole about Ross, but he would, um, the client would write, he would answer them and say, hire an engineer, a local engineer to do a topography, a takeoff on the site, and then send me that topographical map. That was the first thing, right? Here are my fees. Then, almost before he would give his fee, he would look at the uh, topographical map and then figure out in his head if it was going to be a really tough site to work on, if it was going to be easy to come up with a routing, or if it was going to be a spectacular golf course or not. I mean, I think he knew within a day of looking at that routing or looking at the topo if it was going to be worth his while. So he would get in, you know, a prop from Bobby Jones or something or, or uh, Bradenton Country Club and realize that there were two feet of fall on the site and go, okay, I'm going to probably, unfortunately, prioritize this a little less than something like Seminole, you know, with maybe the best site on the Atlantic seaboard. So I think he was very cognizant of that. Because you would see in his letters, they would somebody would write to him and he'd say, "I'm extremely busy. I can't get to you for for you know at least two years." And then he'd say, "Hire an engineer within this two-year time frame. We'll sign a contract and then send me the topo." And then you would see sometimes he would get the topo back and it would be an incredible property. And then he'd be like, "Oh, okay, I can come. <laughs> I can come visit maybe a little quicker than I thought." <laughs> so does that make sense? Yeah, you get an extremely great property like like Doak with Cape Kidnappers or or Pacific Dunes, he goes out there and he goes, holy smokes, this could be... Yeah, I'm going to park it here for career. a while and, yeah, really dig yeah, in. Yeah, and so things take... Um, it's unfortunate, but clubs call me now and I kind of look at it and and you, you, you kind of go, okay, where is this going to be in my body of work, you know, when I'm passed away? Is this really going to be special? You know, are they going to give me the assets that uh, it's going to take to make it special? Is the property special? And so... I'll go really hard after a club that has great property and, and bones and potential. And even if they don't have a lot of money, who cares? Cause it's going to be fun to work there. Um, versus sometimes a club will call you that has all the money in the world and, but it's a dead flat site and there's no architectural significance there. And it's kind of, you know, you're like, well, my fees this and I can get to you at some point. But so even, you know, myself in such a smaller scale in Ross and these other guys, you know, it, it's it's human nature. So, well, we, we know yeah. so much about the way Ross worked because I think I think he left a lot of great documentation behind and, and their letters and, and just a lot of people have dug into it. When there's more volume, there's mm-hmm. more to study and more to understand. How did Flynn work? What what do we know about the the workings of of how he and Toomey and uh, before that, you know, he was 
worked kind of close to Hugh Wilson for a while, and he uh, he helped bring guys like uh, William Gordon along and Dick Wilson. What do we know about the Flynn's methodology? Yeah, Flynn was, um, you know, Flynn started working in Vermont on a golf course. He grew up at Wollaston Golf Club in Boston and was a really great player and won all the Boston stuff and as a, as a youth and then went up to Vermont. He got into, he was really into, you know, golf courses and everything growing up in Boston. And there was so much great Ross up there, ironically, you know, all those clubs around Wollaston and Brayburn and, and Charles river and all that. He would play his high school matches at all those clubs. And this was like 1907 to gosh, cause he was born in uh, 1890. So he was 17 in 1907 to 1909. I think 1909 was his first job in Vermont on a club. That's no longer there. Um, Heelsville, I think it was. And then he went um, down to Philadelphia to work at Marion. Um, and that was actually, that was funny. It was an Alex Finley course, that Vermont course. So he went up there to construct it for Alex Finley. It's funny how they're all tied together. You know, and then Finley was like, wow, you have some decent, you know, you're, you're a strong guy. And because um, Flynn, Flynn went to University of Vermont to play football. And then that's how he got tied in with that, that Vermont course. And he needed money. Let's work construction. And then um, went down to Marion. You know, I think Finley was like, oh, you could learn from, you know, Joe Valentine and be an all star in this industry. You know, and the, the shining guy, the shining stars always shine bright, you know, and we see talent immediately usually you know and it's just like in any form of field you know and golf digest i mean you're going to see you know who's talented pretty quickly you know who's going to be working for you or alongside you but um so he uh went down to marion and learned everything from joe valentine and then slowly reworked marion and became hugh wilson's disciple and then when hugh wilson died in 24 pretty much from 20 1920 onward all the calls that hugh wilson got went right to Flynn because he was like, look, my health is deteriorating. I don't want to do any work. He never charged the fee. He was high society. didn't need the money, but Hey, this guy, William Flynn is really talented. So Flynn really started getting work from like 1915 on, you know, 1909 was his first job up there in Vermont and then worked at Marion and they rebuilt Marion like 1912, 1918. Um, and then Hugh Wilson was kind of hands off and then Flynn rebuilt Marion Flynn is pretty much, or Marion's really a Flynn golf course where he rebuilt it for the 26 AM, the 30 AM that Bobby Jones, and then the 34 open. So Flynn rebuilt it because there used to be holes going across the road there, across Ardmore Ave. And he pretty much rerouted five or six holes there. Even the first hole he flipped, it used to be a dog leg left. Now it's a dog leg right. Um, so things like that, but he learned in the dirt at Marion and just crafted he really um, became almost an agronomist. And so he would get so many calls because greens were dying at somewhere. And, hey, we have this club, Huntington Valley. It's a great club, but, you know, our greens are all dead this year. And he'd go consult on agronomy first and then be like, wow, you really need to reroute your golf course. And I can do that, you know. And then he pretty much joined Howard Toomey or Toomey joined him and was the construction arm of his, of his um, you know, firm. And really from like 1917 onward, he broke out of doing all the Marion work and really, you know, slowly started his own business. And then Hugh Wilson gave him all that. He pretty much finished Pine Valley, the last four holes, uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, after Colt didn't come back. Um, those are like the last four holes. Because obviously at Pine Valley, 
they went to seed Pine Valley in to um 1912 1913 1914 and it didn't take because they demuck they took all the sludge out of the ponds and it was all decaying leaf matter they thought all that organic matter would be brilliant to put in the fairways and help grow grass but in reverse it hurt them and they couldn't grow any grass because it created like a black layer on their fairways so pine valley had to regress their golf course like 1915 16 17 18 because they couldn't grow it in and, and that's what created the financial ruin at pv and then that's why um crump killed himself because they were in they were in bankruptcy so he killed yeah, himself i was just reading get, something about that in one of the old yeah. usga green record sections about how hard it was for them to right. grow grass and their trial and error and and it was really <laughs> yeah they did everything like, wrong yeah yeah but they would have everybody that knew grass. They'd bring in Ross. They'd bring in Tillingas. They brought in Flynn. They brought in Hugh Wilson. And nobody could figure out why they couldn't grow grass in the fairways. And then they realized that, oh, my gosh, you know, after like four seasons. And they would keep planting in the spring. And all the grass would die in July when it got to 100 degrees, you know, in the sand there. And so he then became very prominent because of helping finish Pine Valley, you know, 1917, 18. Um, and then Pine Valley called back Colton 21 and he sent Allison over to Allison, uh, CH Allison. Um, and then Allison kind of worked in America from 21 onward. But, um, but it was like a big you know, blend of things. What happened for Flynn and why he became so successful is he knew agronomy so well from being at Marion for so long and learning under maybe the best agronomist in the game. So Valentine, and then Hugh Wilson was giving him all his calls. Then he helped finish Pine Valley a little bit. It was really odd how, like, when you read the letters, they called Flynn, but then they didn't really want him to do the work because it was, I don't know what was going on. It was it was like, hey, you're a Marion guy. We don't want you at PV. You know, Marion's your baby. Um, it was really odd. So I think Hugh Wilson and Wilson's brother kind of finished the last couple holes, and then they somehow – you know, got it going themselves. So I don't know how much he really helped them at PV, but somehow his career blew up like 1918, 1919, 1920. Um, and then he really took off in the twenties like everybody else. But then he added to me and they had the construction arm. And then he was so wealthy at, at that point in the twenties that he was like a part owner of the Phillies and, um, you know, Philadelphia Phillies and, and was very successful and made a ton of money in construction, but so many clubs would call him in the twenties with grass issues. And then he would end up redesigning things. Um, and then, you know, obviously you got Shinnecock in 1929 that opened, you know, 32, it took a couple of years, 30, 31. And that was his crown jewel along with Cherry Hills, Indian Creek, um, the country club, you know, he went back and he got the country club job because he grew up in Wollaston and was a local Boston boy. You know, because you would think Ross being up there, like Ross did plans for the country club, but never got selected and nothing was ever implemented from Ross's plans. But everybody, always, it's always like, how did he get the country club? You know, and well, because Flynn was from there. So it was pretty cool, uh, Flynn's career. and Yeah, and like his body of work is much more digestible than Ross's. You know, you could see, it seemed like he would take on, you know, he'd have maybe three, four or five, I don't know, projects a year you know or things going on at the cool. same time you know it's it's sort of like the the model of the design build guys now you know you can see okay 
we have enough resources and, and, and wattage and are what we're going to build a few courses a year, but we're going to limit it to that. It just seems like his, his business model was something that you could kind of wrap your arms around and, and, and see, all right, they can really dial in the details on these golf courses because they're not spread out all over the country in 20 different places. Exactly. Yeah, and he was mainly mid-Atlantic up to Boston, you know, more of that. He did his Cherry Hills. He did Mill 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 Road Farm in Chicago, and he did Indian Creek in Florida and stuff like that, and Boca in Florida. Um, but mostly, most of his work is from, like, the Country Club of Virginia in Richmond up to Boston. So his guys would drive everywhere and be local. But then he did – he had much more of a construction arm and spent a lot of time on those jobs and had – like you mentioned earlier, William Gordon, um, who then is David, who helped him in his career, and he had Red Lawrence, who ended up going out to Arizona, right. having an incredible career yep. in the West, and then Dick Wilson, you know, who uh, took so much credit for Shinnecock Hills when really he was kicked off that job twice, <laughs> um, you know, but um, but Dick had to hang his hat on something in his career, you know, after everybody was dead, you know, in the fifties he would say, oh yeah, I built Shinnecock, you know, and but Flynn was dead and Gordon wasn't paying attention. It worked. You know, so yeah, so it worked for him, but so he did have a stable of really talented guys underneath him. Um, you know, cause red Lawrence and Gordon, William Gordon built Shinnecock and apparently, you know, William or no way. Uh, Wilson was like a young guy on that project, finishing greens and stuff. And, um, but what a talented, you know, trio there. And you but you know, like here's a real, here's something I just recorded a, a book club podcast on the world Atlas of golf. And I was mm-hmm. reading through some of the old profiles and uh, the original edition of that book was uh, published in 1976 and the uh, North American section, all the profiles were written by Charles Price. And in 1976 in Shinnecock, mm-hmm. he talks about the night when Shinnecock um, was reopened in 31 and he calls it, it uh, he gives all the credit to Dick Wilson in the book. Yeah, so at that yeah, point, incredible. into the mid-70s at least, Dick Wilson's, you know, whatever he had put out there was still uh, kind of the, the current information. No, I have a letter which is incredible from Flynn. So Red Lawrence and, and, um, and William Gordon wanted uh, Wilson off the job. They were like, this guy is nuts. He's not building anything to your plans. He keeps going off and diverting from your plans. And Flynn apparently went up there and talked to Wilson and was like the reason why Wilson kept the job, but he had a limited role there. It was mainly Flynn, Gordon and Red Lawrence. And he was just, you know, yeah. uh, a young guy on the crew. So, cause I, if I'm pretty sure, I think Wilson was born in, gosh, I want to say like 1904. So there's no way, I mean, he was only 27 in 1931. So there's no way he had, you know, a lot of bravado on that job site. There's you probably know. some, uh, you know, a handful of like young 25, 27 year old shapers right now who are just doing kind of some grunt work on some course. But if they hang in the game long enough in, in 30 years, you know, when everybody else is gone, they can take credit for, you know, building whatever, you know, course X yeah. for or Bill Coor or something. <laughs> yeah. And that's almost like me right now. You know, it's like Dormy Club. It's like I was a Dick Wilson on that job. I was 27 or six. And that's right. Just give it time and that'll be your course. You yeah, convince yeah, some exactly. some writer like me that you're the one who did it all. <laughs> right, right. But in real, in real, you know, and when the real facts were that, like Bill Core floated every green, and every green has his fingerprints on it, and uh, his routing, and he spent so much time out there, and 
It's like I really had nothing to do with that <laughs> job, you know. So, but uh, but pretty cool, very cool. And you know, Flynn though, uh, he's so underrated. He's so under radar. You know, maybe he only did 120 courses or something. I I don't know what his exact number is, but it's more than people think. I have a list of them, um, but I haven't counted them. But it's anywhere from 90 to 120. So it's more than people think, but sometimes those were like nip and tucks at clubs. So maybe really it was only like 88 new courses. Mm. Um, but uh, he's so underrated. I mean, if you look at his top five, though, Marion, Shinnecock, Brookline, Huntington Valley, Lancaster, that's probably the top five. Um, maybe the country club in Ohio. I mean, that's really spectacular. You know, maybe those six. And I'm trying to think. I always leave something out. But, you know, Cherry Hills is Cherry in Hills, there. Cascades. Yeah. Oh, Cas- there you go. Cascades is so under the radar. So those seven, you know, and Indy Creek's pretty cool, but it's pretty flat. But, um, you know, so, but he has like 12 or 15 really, really good ones. Lehigh. Um, Lehigh, yeah. You know, Salk. I mean, you just keep naming them. Um, so he probably has like 15 really great ones, you know, 20 really great ones out of 88 that he built. So that's a 25% ratio that, you know, that he created greatness. Oh, and Burke, yeah, yeah, the country club and, there's a, oh, Catanzit, you know, and I was, I knew I was missing a couple, but so anyway, there might be 15 that are almost in the top 100 for Flynn, you know, he almost dominates that top 100 classic. So pretty cool. You spent um, a lot of time in your career uh, working for Ron Pritchard. Um, who, how did you meet Ron? That's a great question. I, um, I saw his work at Aronimink growing up in Philadelphia. I used to caddy there. I used to caddy at Aronimo Club, and it was 2002 or 2001 when he redid Aronimo for the first time um, and erased all the Robert Trent Jones and the Fazio stuff. I don't know if it was Fazio. It might, might have just been Robert Trent Jones, RTJ, all the mounding and stuff, and got it back to its original bones. And that was shocking to me because I was playing all these great courses in, in and around Philadelphia, the Marions and the and um, Pine Valleys and all that stuff as a junior golfer. And I saw how incredible the night and day work was. That was like the first tree removal, you know, anywhere that I'd seen. And everybody, oh, my gosh, don't cut down these beautiful big oaks. And Ron was so far ahead of his time in restoration. Like they call him the father of restoration, which is pretty darn true. And um, but he's so humble. He'll never, you know, ever say anything about that. But he uh, his work there was stunning. And he got all the greens way, they were circles before he came in there. And he got all the greens pushed way, way back to these incredible corners. I mean, we're talking 30 feet sometimes he expanded these greens. And when Gil went in there in 2015, 2016, he had just minor green expansions because Ron had already gotten them way, way out, like doubled their size. Mm -hmm. And um, that was shocking when I played it. I remember thinking this was like, it was the best course I'd ever played. And that summer I'd probably played Pine Valley and Marion. But I, wow. I just was so blown away by the scale. The scale. I remember huge oaks, big greens, big bold bunkers, huge fairways, and it was so hard. I remember playing some of my best golf before going to Kentucky and shooting like 77 there, and I played well. you know. And like the low for the day out of 180 guys was like 71. You know? But we played, it was like 7,000 yards, you know, 7,100 yards in 2002 or 01. And hilly and the greens are fast and they had so much character in the greens and just being like man i heard Aron- 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 was good. This is 
incredible. And that year it went from like 300 in the top 100 to like 52, <laughs> you know, his transformation, everybody, it, everybody saw it. And then his phone, you know, gosh, then his phone blew up. He was like the guy. So from 2000, 2000 to 2010, he had an incredible 10 or 12 year or 15 year run where he was the guy, which was cool. So, but I wrote him a letter. Um, I want to say like, Oh, three, and he got right back to me. He was so nice. And he spent a lot of time with me. And he said, look, if you want to do this, you got to work construction. You can't just be a pencil pusher. But do take art classes and learn how to draw because that's imperative. And if you can do really beautiful sketches, it goes a long way you know, in your career. And so I, took, I, I, I kind of minored in art history at Kentucky and uh, took a bunch of art classes and tried to learn how to draw and everything. But he was like, you need to work construction. So every... Well, I was going to Kentucky and trying to play golf there, which obviously didn't work out because they were SEC and JB Holmes was on the team and everything. They were <laughs> so good um, that I just pretty much stopped playing golf and just full-time transitioned into architecture. Like, okay, this is my career. And so I kind of knew that pretty much freshman year of college. And then that's when I worked uh, construction and I worked for um, some big contractors and learned um, how, you know, how, golf courses that were built and restored and then that's how i got on with keith foster and corn crenshaw because i had experience you know um, of working a little bit um, out in the field and they valued that um and then ron brought me on like 2011 2012 after i had become a shaper and learned and run big big projects and shaped for reese jones and fazio and all those guys and uh he was like i don't want to pay you to learn i want you to go learn on somebody else's dime and then i'll bring you in when i need you type thing so um but that was perfect timing for both of us i had him on that i had him on this podcast early on yeah, in, in the one. podcast yeah, and I, we, I don't know that we even talked about golf <laughs> i think we got yeah, around to it eventually but golf. we talked about beethoven yeah. paganini and uh architecture <laughs> you know building architecture and all kinds of stuff yeah, he's so uh, in. He has such a brilliant mind, and uh, he's so easy to. When I go into his office, sometimes I'm there for ten hours because it's like we start talking about this, and then we and we get sidetracked pretty pretty easily. Because I'm so type A, but he's so type B. You know, he's such an artist. So we really complimented each other. Because mm-hmm. um, he 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 brought me into one help run jobs and travel because he wanted to slow down a little bit with his travel. You know, he's like a four and a half million miler. <laughs> he didn't want to keep flying. And that's so he didn't want to keep flying everywhere, you know? And so I was like, okay, I'll be the travel monkey. I'm cool with that. I was still single at the time for, uh, you know, being married and a kid and everything. But, um, and I was shaping and, and he really taught me everything about Ross and, um, you know, I would do all like the bid documents and all the numbers and all the, all the re- real detail stuff. And then he would be, that would allow him to free him up to be the artist and draw his sketches and do master plans and hand draw everything. And so he was, uh, he loved that. And, um, you know, he had an incredible career. He's slowing down now. And, um, cause gosh, it's been probably 48 years he's been in the business, you know, which is incredible. It's like Pete die, you know? So, uh, and then it's my time to kind of, move on and um, hang my own shingle and everything. And so he's been great about that. You know, last five, six years, he's let me, as long as it's any of our projects together, 
you know, go, Hey, go get as much work as you want, Tyler, you know, go visit every course you can, you know, hit the road as hard as you can build your own business. As long as, uh, you know, you take care of business with me, we're good. So that was, I owe him, you know, everything. He was the best. So, yeah. He, and he spent some time working with Desmond Muirhead, which <laughs> do, I, yeah. do you have any, do you have one quick uh, story about that, that maybe Ron told you? Yeah. I know a lot of those Desmond Muirhead stories. Uh, I, let me tell you one real quick, though. Uh, this is full circle. This is kind of ironic. So the whole week I've been at Stone Harbor, New Jersey, and I was hired by them this year to rework a lot of stuff and kind of take out some Desmond Muirhead stuff that's still out there and just, you know, make it a little more user-friendly. And all like every hour while I'm out there in the dozer, I'm thinking about Ron and his stories about Muirhead working with him and it's so funny that those guys were working together in the late 70s and early 80s and and he probably ron probably did plans for stone harbor and then here i am a predecessor uh 35 years later that was built in 86 you know 34 years later i'm now <laughs> working in the same dirt that those guys were walking around and it's kind of odd but cool you know at the same time definitely but, uh yeah, I know he said Desmond sometimes would come in and get like really, really into land art and talk about some classical piece that he was studying and some mythological, you know, thing that he wanted in the dirt and just get totally off, you know, off basis. Um, but then it would kind of come out looking okay. And But he said that Desmond, to his credit, you know, we always want to be positive about people. We don't want to really down, you know, bad talk them, but... Uh, he said Desmond was the planner, like unbelievable land planner. With, right. And that was what was coming into vogue in the 70s and 80s was land planning and community golf. And he said Desmond had like this extra gear for planning incredible communities with golf courses and intermingling them, but giving enough width. And that's exactly what Stone Harbor has is there's so much width and you don't ever see houses um, maybe once on the golf course. Um, and there's beautiful trees and everything in the peripheral areas and he was brilliant about that not just about stacking those houses right on the fairways um so i thought that was pretty cool yeah yeah at some, at sometimes you can go into those old uh, they're not old but like you said they're from the 70s maybe early 80s the housing development courses and sometimes there's a, a pretty good feeling about them like there there's a there is this sense of space and and things are there there are houses and streets but everything seems to kind of work right and there's enough room for the golf and it's really neat to, to see how housing and golf can coexist sort of we, we we'd like to mm-hmm. not have that if all possible but that that's not always the case, and I think I think like you said, Desmond was better at that than a lot of people were. Oh, for sure, for sure. He uh, his plan and, and a couple of the plans. I mean, he did Muirfield with Jack, right? You know, and that land plan. Mm-hmm. That's where my wife's family is from, is Dublin, Ohio, and I go out there for the tournament every year and walk the course. I go out real early in the morning and walk the course when nobody's out there because I love to just. That's my favorite thing to do, and uh, just take everything in. You know, nature, everything serene. Um, you know, a cup of coffee with you, you know, walk around, get your feet wet. And um, even that plan is incredible. How you, the houses are there, but you don't really notice them. Like even on TV, you really never see houses, mm-hmm. but they're there. And that community plan is incredible for all of your field and everything. And, and, and you know, that was pretty much Desmond Verhead. 
pretty cool. You mentioned your um, your client list is growing. You've got a lot of good clubs that you're working with. I wanted to touch on a couple golf courses before we before we wrap this up. One of them that you're working with is Woodland uh, up in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and I believe that was one of the first courses that Ross was involved with after he came to Boston from from Scotland. Mm-hmm. What so? What's the plan for that? And what do you know of uh, what it might have looked like in 1903? Are you, if it's a restoration, will you take it back that far? Because that's there's got to be, it's got to be kind of crude at that point in time when it first opened. Mm-hmm. What what is oh, the plan at Woodland? Yeah, that's a great question, Derek. He um, so when he emigrated over, he worked at Oakley in 1899, and then pretty much 1900 went right down to Pinehurst and was asked by Leonard Tufts to work down there. And Woodland was his third course he ever was consulting at. Uh, Woodland was number three and then Pine, Pinehurst number two was in 1903 as well. So pretty much uh, it's really cool rarefied air to be in, you know, the same year as Pine. And obviously Pinehurst number two, he tinkered with until gosh, he almost died. So it's very different than what he did in 1903. But but I have uh, like three different routings, and then there's a there was a golfer's magazine, the golfer magazine publication from 1903 that has a seven page article on what was done there. And so what happened is there were nine holes there from like 1895, I want to say. Um, so for eight years there, it was a nine hole course at Woodland Golf Club, and it was very rudimentary and almost like a crossover hole, and they had a uh, kind of like a quarry and a peat bog and everything. And then Ross came in with Alex Finley, actually. He teamed up uh, with Alex Finley a couple times in the nineteen early 1900s before really hanging his own shingle in, like, 1910. Because um, when he really, like, transferred in 1910 and really opened up his own firm, because he went back to the British Isles to study everything in the British Isles. He did a whole summer trip and then played in the British Open and finished, I think, 10th or 6th in the British Open, the Open. Um, And then he pretty much said when he came back, he made it public and very, very well known in all the publications at the time that he was the preeminent authority on British Isles architecture and golf architecture. And he had built all these courses from 1899 to 1909. I think 12 courses he'd worked on so far in that time frame or maybe more. And um, actually it was probably less than that. I think it was maybe nine or 10 courses, but, um, he um, pretty much quit golf then. He was like, look, I'm going to stop playing um, golf. I'm going to focus on being a golf architect. I'm running Pinehurst in the winter, Boston in the summer. And that was like his big, you know, coming out party in 1910. But in 1903, being so young, his brother, Alec Ross, was the pro at Woodland. And that's how he got called over there. And Ross was still so, so much, pretty much of an immigrant he called upon Alex Finley to help him out. So he worked, I think three or four clubs in, in from 1903 to 1909 with Alex Finley as consultants. So they added nine holes at Woodland and rerouted the original nine. And there's still a handful of those old greens from 1903, which is incredible. There's still these really cool, big old perched fill pads that fall off steeply on the sides, the 17th hole, the 18th green, um, 15th green so there's some original stuff out there which is great but my goal is to give it an old rugged feel i'm gonna give it a little more flavor you know my my i would probably be doing the club on just you know work like it wouldn't be justice if 
I gave her the 1903 Ross because, right. like you said, they're so rudimentary. <laughs> I think that's a good call. You know, they were cop bunkers. They were top shop bunkers. They were they were mounds. You know, little um, chocolate shops everywhere. Yeah, and some of that's cool. You know, which I love, but it can be overdone because it's a ball goes in there and it's long grass and it's really you know yada yada. The game was so impossible. But uh, so I'm going to give it like a 1903 rugged face on the bunkers. You know, wrinkled look like they were built with a scoop and shovel, you know, uh, um, a team of horses and, and a scoop. Um, but I'm going to give it an updated, you know, I'm going to fit the bunkers into the landform. So I'm shifting a lot of bunkers into ridges because, because um, an architect, uh, Jeff Cornish came in who worked at everything in new England. He came in in the seventies and rerouted a couple of and bunkered it and moved bunkers all over the place. And they're kind of set for the 1970s game and at distances, but not, they don't match the landforms. So there would be these, these beautiful rolls running through fairways where bunker would sit in gorgeous, you know, perfectly, but it might not be at the perfect distance. It might be at 310, but uh, Jeff Cornish put it at like 285, you know, and it sits out so oddly like a volcano from the ridge. So I'm going to wipe away all these odd features that, that don't match the, the land and fit in where bunkers should and I'm going to read the ground and let the ground dictate where bunkers are supposed to be placed, just like Ross and all these old architects would. Um, you know, the ground dictates it, not mathematics. So I'm going to put those back 66 bunkers um, and then make it a lot more attractive from the T, you know, wider fairways, bigger floodplane corridors, a lot of tree removal, which we've already done, um, shorter height of rough. I'm not a big fan of three and four inch rough everywhere. I like two and a half inches, you know, the bane of golf is searching for golf balls. Um, guys want to hit it and you'll find it. And if they spray it a little bit, that's fine. But I'm a big fan of like stratified stepped, stepped rough where, you know, for the first 30 feet off of both sides of the fairway, we mowed a two and a half and then we go up to three, like a gradual, you know, and then once you're 30 feet off the fairway, then it's three inches. And then once you're 60 or 80 or hundred feet off the fairway, it's native or four inch. And so, it's kind of layers of how far you miss it off the fairway. Um, you know, as you're kind of, that's how you're penalized. And so I'll, um, I'll put back a lot of that, expand a lot of greens, rebuild one green that is totally, it's kind of built on a peat bog and settling and really odd. And they can't put pins on, on any of them. Um, so the third green I'm going to rebuild. And so it's a very basic, you know, plan, but it's going to give them more character. They're going to, they're going to be proud of their heritage and uh, it's going to be clean, classy. The scale is going to match. Right now, it's all disconnected. There's big bunkers on some holes. There's small ones. There's, you know, some of the greens are 8,000 square feet. There's no consistency, and it's not seamless at all. So I want to give the club a seamless and consistent golf course from 1 to 18, um, something that they can be proud of, something really classy. Yeah, and... uh we're going to break ground here. We're going to break ground in about eight days. So, cause there's no winter again in Boston. So instead of April 1st, I'm going to break ground March 9th. It's all in the South. So it's kind of thrown. Yeah. I mean like Philly's the new Memphis. That's what I just heard yesterday. <laughs> yeah. It's upside down. Well, the other, the other one um, I wanted to touch on is it, your project in Maryland, Green Springs Valley Hunt Club, which was uh, for a long time, a, a nine hole course, Herbert Strong, and then in the 50s, Robert Trent Jones added another nine. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. I sort of have a, a theory that I find it's, it's it's difficult to prove, 
but that the Robert Trent Jones in the in the 40s and 50s and maybe even into the early 60s was not the same guy that we think of now. And I'm not sure that we really get ever get a, a, a look at what he was building during that period. You know, everything's overgrown now. All the good stuff that he built has been completely remodeled, most of it by his son. So I don't know that we really have a, a feel for what he was doing at that phase in his career. Later in his career, you know, he, he really amped it up with that, you know, Spyglass Hill and trying to make these really tough tournament courses. But a lot of his stuff is on pretty good land. A lot of it's core golf. He added the nine holes at, at Green Springs Valley Hunt Club, which, um, mm-hmm. and I'd like to get your opinion on on his work there. And during that period, did he do a good job of matching up with what existed at that time? Uh, he did. He did. He was just really, really getting busy at that 57. And because uh, he redid the 16th hole when he flipped the green from the left side of the creek to the right side and created a pond at, at Augusta National in like 47, 48. And that, and then TV was coming right. to fruition. So yep. he blew up after flipping that old golf hole. You know, uh, Mackenzie had it on the left with the creek on the right. Mm-hmm. And he created the big pond and then flipped the green to the right and had that big boomerang green that we see Tiger and all those guys, you know, roll them in. Um, you know, using the backboard on the right of 16. So he got a lot of notoriety from 48 onward. So his notes to the club are incredible about how busy he was and how much his phone was ringing. And um, he mentions, I think he was doing work at that time at Augusta because he said, I've been at that club in Georgia and they won't leave me alone, he says in one letter, which is incredible. So Humble brag. He was working at a, yeah, he was working at uh, Augusta as Greenspring uh, Valley Hunt Club. And so he came in and modified a little bit of the Herbert Strong. There's still pretty much nine greens that are, or eight greens that are Herbert Strong, old push-up, kind of cool, very basic architecture. And then there's 10 or 11 holes of um, RTJ from 56, 57. And it's pretty good. His routing was pretty good. You could see how crude they were with bulldozers at that time, though, because there's a lot of cut and fills that are really odd. Like, you can just see the cut, you know, going through a saddle, and then you can see the fill. Mm-hmm. So I want to blend some of that out and make it look a little more natural because it's such a beautiful part of the world. It's like horse, you know, it's horse farm country of Baltimore. Right. And it's really, really gorgeous. It's right next to Kays Valley. It's in this beautiful valley setting with a incredible clubhouse, and they have everything but everything is incredible at that club, but the golf course right now. And so they just need to throw some money in which they are an upgrade of um, the bunkering. And, and again, I want to bring consistency and seamlessness to that golf course because it's so disconnected. It's like, as soon as you come off one green, it's this Herbert stronghold and it's very, very basic. One bunker in the fairway, one bunker short and right front of the green, great fill pad of the green, you know, it's perched up four feet. Then you go in RTJ hole and it's all mounted and, and, you know, um, beautiful, but still pretty crude architecture, long runway T, you know, big, bold features. And it's, it's like nine days. So I kind of want to blend it a little bit and I'm going to kind of give the course, uh, RTJ Herbert strong kind of blended bunker where it's Herbert strong had more primarily grass faces, flatter bottoms, kind of like a Ross bunker, you know, we see it engineers and some of his other clubs that he did, um, country club of Maryland, um, I have a whole list that I visited of his courses. Um, but RTJ, what I did is I did like an RTJ study tour last winter. And I went to Grand, um, 
most of his um, Wilmington South, Wilmington Country Club South in Delaware is actually probably one of his best courses still intact. Okay. 1960, 1959, and it's so bold, and the scale is incredible. And you can you literally step on that golf course, and it's wow, this is RTJ at maybe his peak. And that was just two years or three years after Greenspring. So I, I went and visited probably 15 courses that RTJ had done and tried to see, you know, Pointo Woods, stuff like that, that he had done in that time frame, yeah. 55 to 60. Yeah. And uh, it was incredible seeing Valderrama. I thought Valderrama was incredible. Um, and Valderrama was 72, and Soda Ground was 62. They were 10 years apart. And you can see what he did. He did at Valderrama. Soda Ground has big, scra- big scale, 1962, everything's there. And then he did the reverse at Valderrama in 72. It was almost like he was doing a Pete Dye um, heritage, you know, um, um, Hilton Head. Um, <laughs> Harbortown, sorry, Harbortown, where yeah. Pete Dye did just like the opposite. The, exactly, where he was reversing it on him in the industry. So he did that. He he um, was a predecessor to what Pete Dye did in '85 at Harbortown. He did that in '72 at, at Valderrama, and everything's there's these old cork trees, and the fairways are all tiny and small. But the greens have so much character, and they're tight. But the bunkering's incredible, and the routing was this is maybe it was by far the best RTJ. And I had thought, like, oh, it's going to be all overgrown and going to be real oddly grassed. And it's so comical because you have to hit it dead straight. But there was so much – it was such great land and so much better. It was, like, the highlight of my European trip last year um, when I was in uh, Europe for about five weeks, you know, seeing everything I could. And um, everything from um, Germany and, and um, Holland all the way down to Spain and – uh that was shocking to see how cool Valderrama actually was. And then I had a lot more respect for RTJ. So I think RTJ Sr. was great and um, a lot of good stuff that he produced. I mean, Peachtree. Peachtree is probably one of the best courses. It's it's probably my top 50 in the world. And he's just he knocked it out of the ballpark there. Great routing. And I know Bobby Jones was really involved too, but um, he was going to try to get the Masters there. You know, Bobby Jones was trying to get the masters there in the thirties when Augusta was kind of fluttering. And that was why, why he built it, you know, in, in, or not in the thirties. Sorry. It wasn't built. I don't think until 40. I think they started it in 46. Remember. Yeah. 46 and completed 49. So he was trying to get the masters there at some point, um, you know, after that, but, uh, pretty cool. Um, RTJ gets knocked a lot, but a lot of his work, you know, I'm going to be touching a lot of it. I'm sure in the future. And, uh, you know, my father said that once a couple of years ago. He said, "Oh, RTJ, Reese Jones, and all these guys—they're best thing ever for your company." And I was like, "What are you talking about? I'm like, <laughs> I got to go in and, you know, edit these things." And he was like, "Well, it's going to be work for the rest of your life. You know, you're going to be busy for the rest of your career because there's so much of it. Mm-hmm. You know, he designed 472 courses or something. So there's a lot of inventory out there, and it all needs to be yeah. taken care of." Yeah, it all needs new irrigation now and drainage and bunkering. You know, bunkering after 20, 30 years, you know, needs some reworking. So pretty cool. But uh, but at Greenspring, they have great history and bones, and it just needs to be touched up a little bit. I have mm-hmm. a very um, – I'm not going to – you know, I'm not even rebuilding any greens. I'm going to just go around the greens and try to give it all the same flavor and the same bunker style. A little more sand flash there kind of to – to honor RTJ, you know, and honor a little 
flatter bottom like um, Herbert Strong, but a little more sand flash, maybe a two, two and a half, three foot sand flash. So you see sand on every hole, um, just so they're a little more visible because everything I've read from his site notes, he would talk about sand visibility, um, like especially behind greens. He would put bunkers behind greens and then flash the sand so you could see them, kind of like uh, 12 at Augusta, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. almost identical to that. So um, so very interesting and um it's incredible. Every every course. That's why my professions. I love it so much. Is every day is different. Every club's different that I visit. You know, every everything that I'm doing. I love working on different styles. You know, some people have typecast me as like just the Ross guy, and I'm trying to break that because yeah, I was with Ron Pritchard for eight ten years, but we mainly worked on Ross or Rainer or Flynn. But gosh, and right now I'm working on so many. Um, so many Finley courses. You're working Quinn on courses, Mike Strands. So many, yeah, two Mike Strands courses, and then Desmond Muirhead courses. And, and so I, there you go. a club calls, I don't care what who did it. I just want to make it better and give them intense value. You know, and I love seeing the Cedar Rapids and the clubs like that where we do work for an incredible value, you know, six dollars $700,000. That totally transforms the club. You know, where they then have a membership now that's full and no debt and everybody's happy, (laughs) you know, and then the superintendent's wages go up and the GMs and the pros get paid a little higher, you know, more compensation because now the club is healthier. And so, you know, everybody, it affects everybody. And so I just love even the financials of clubs. You know, I come into clubs so much and I say, look, you need to run this club like a business, you know, all of you are really great at what you do, and you might be small business owners or doctors or lawyers, but we need to run this club like business. And so there needs to be a plan for success, a master plan or a plan of getting you out of debt, and then a totem pole. We need to work off of a pole, you know, off of a stratified list, and each year knock out a couple of things off of this list. And so it's like a methodical march towards um, financial security and a healthy club. Well, we've we've spent uh, a good bit of time talking about history. I got to ask this question, like I ask everybody: What's the best modern golf course that you've seen, or, or what's your favorite modern golf course? Ooh, that's a great, great question. What's what have I seen that's modern? That's great. Yeah, and the caveat, um, of course, is it, you cannot have worked there. Yeah. Um, oh, of course, I wouldn't say anything. To me, no, no. Dormy Club. Sure. I'm not, <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah. I'm not that. Uh, I don't care that much about, you know, it's funny, you know, real quick tangent, Ron Pritchard and I, we always say, like, we're always not done with our product. Like, we always think it could be better, you know, and we, it's so hard to pull us off a bunker or, you know, I always back out of a bunker out with the bulldozer and then hand rake it out and get the details. And I'm always, oh man, could I edit this a little bit? At some point you got to leave it alone, which I'm, I've gotten so much better at my career is just getting away from it, but we're never satisfied with our product so so i could never pick one of mine (laughs) but uh the best i've seen modern would probably be oh gosh i'm trying to think i saw something recently that was so shockingly good um i thought um modern golf it's really i mean what modern's got to be what from 70 on or something like that probably yeah um i'd say Probably, you know, I thought what Kyle Phillips did at 
California Golf Club was, you know, or what Gil did at L.A. Country Club mm-hmm. and on the L.A. North or what Kyle Phillips did at Kings Barnes. My dad is my dad's favorite course in the world. Kings, Kings Barnes? Barnes. Yeah. It's Kyle Phillips from, you know. Several other people have mentioned Kings yeah. Barnes, actually. That yeah, was yeah, David it, Kidd I mean, said that. Just, yeah. Yeah. And that's so great of David Kidd to say that. That's awesome. You know, but uh, that are really Pacific dunes. You know, I, um, Pacific, um, yeah, what Tom Doak and those guys did mm-hmm. at, at Pacific Dunes, I thought. I've walked that course so many times and been out abandoned, and I think that's head and, head and heels his best work. And, uh, I mean, there's just so many intricate details. You walk off the first green. I remember walking off the first green my first time I was there, and I looked at all the intricate hand, like, mounding and, and subtleties rolling off of that green, and I knew how hard that was to get shape architect and i just stood there for a while because i wasn't playing i was just walking it you know before any other groups in the morning and i stood there and then the first group caught up to me and they're like what are you doing out here i'm like oh let me get ahead of you because i'd stood on the darn first green for so long just enamored with their work and their detail so i'd probably say pacific dunes um yeah and then That's la just- country club yeah, LA's club. good. I, I agree. <laughs> so those those are cheating though. I mean, those are those are older clubs. I know. Yeah, yeah, they had bones. And switched around crazy. a little but, bit, you know, but what Kyle Phillips did with that seventh hole boomerang at Cal Club, I think that's the best hole on the golf course, and he added it and found it. You know, yeah. so that was really. I, I came in there and I didn't know that story until I talked to them after, and I'm like, that seventh hole is so good. And they're like, yeah, that was a brand new hole, brand new hole from Kyle Phillips. <laughs> like. That's the best darn hole in the, that I've seen in California. <laughs> so, anyway, but all right. Uh, well, let's let's, let's wrap see. it up with this last one. Um, yeah. Of all the work that you've done, and this can be something that you've worked on. I'm assuming it's going to be. What's been the most either the the most striking transformation or the most satisfying transformation of a project? Taking something that you inherited in in one state, and then seeing how it came out the other end. What's been the 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 mm-hmm. most satisfying or or the or the biggest accomplishment? Wow, that's a great question too. Um, you know, like the most striking before and after yeah. would probably be hmm, there's um there are a couple holes at Cedar Rapids that I'm really mighty proud of where they literally there was nothing. There the hole was insipid and bland and treed, so covered in trees. And then the after is it almost drops people out of their seat you know they're like wait wait wait, is that the same hole like is that the same course you know and so that's pretty shocking and then where was i, I did something last year uh it's a flynn course in philadelphia that i added two new holes on and then gave them a new range and took out there are two flynn holes that were just really odd that didn't fit that i don't know what happened if something happened over the years but one was like a straightaway the 10th hole 300 yard par four and there was no character in the green it was really odd. And then right along a roadway. And so I said, let's take that out. Let's build your range here, your practice facility. And then all I found two new locations to add a great little par three. It's like 180 yards with a beautiful Flynn green and beautiful scaled bunkers. And um, that came out. The before and afters there, um, I've gotten more emails about that from guys in Philly. Um which is really gratifying. Like, oh my gosh, your work here, like on Twitter or something, if you post something or Instagram. Um, so probably those two. And then sometimes the the work, um, like at Atlantic Golf Club in the Hamptons. Um, 
uh, I've been taking out Reese Jones's bunkers and giving him like an old rugged blowout look. And people like John Cavalier went up there and took a lot of photos from Lynx Gems. And he was shocked at, you know, uh, the, the old photos are these big saucer bunkers, you know, and all the mounds that Reese Jones put in in 92. He would cut all the dirt in the fairway and push it to the sides and then mound it all up and then put the bunkers in. And they're, they look like big figure eights and like a Florida golf course almost. And everything smooth edged. And then we went in and ripped everything out and gave it an old world feel. But that was really a lot of the credit goes to Bob Raynham, the superintendent and Tony Stalters, uh, the two supers. And, um, cause they had been tinkering for years before me. And I just came in in the last five and helped them really take it to the next level. Um, and we just did a ton of work this winter. And so it's almost done. There's like one or two more holes, but now, when people go out to the East End of Long Island, they play Shinnecock, Maidstone, um, National Golf Links. When they play Atlantic Golf Club, I hear more from people about, and Friars Head, you know, when they play those five, I hear more from people saying that they enjoyed Atlantic more than those four. That really gets my juices going. So I think that's great, you know, that I'm still associated with them. Tyler Ray is doing some fantastic work throughout the Northeast, but also in the Midwest, the Mid-Atlantic, and into the Southeast. The name Gil Hans came up a few times. No one's as hot or as busy as Hans, who's recently had a tremendous run of new courses like Mossy Oak, Streamsong Black, the Hoopy Match Club, and Pinehurst Number no. 4, which is a new course. But he's probably been more impactful in the restoration game at places like Marion Wingfoot, which we'll see this summer at the U.S. Open, and Los Angeles Country Club, where the Open goes in 2023. Is Hans the new Open Doctor? <laughs> Perhaps, especially considering the next summer and the summer after, we may be seeing the last of Reese Jones's Open prep work at Torrey Pines and the Country Club in Brookline. At some point, the work of restoring and prepping the roster of major tournament venues is going to matriculate down to a new generation of designer. And as you've just heard, with his talent, presentation ability, work ethic, and knowledge of history, Tyler Ray is putting himself in a great position to be in that conversation. One quick fact check, uh, when we were talking about Alex Findlay, I mentioned in the podcast that he uh, originally built the Built War in Florida. The property I was actually searching for was uh, the Breakers in Palm Beach, not the Built War. And that course there, interestingly is currently being renovated by Reese Jones. Uh, will Reese be returning to a period-specific, antiquated, Finlay-esque look? Or even the retro style of Brian Silva's renovation from 10 or 15 years ago? Hmm. Well, that's all for now. Thanks to Tyler Ray for a great conversation. Thanks to you, as always, for listening. Please remember to visit FeedTheBall.com and also to subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. Thanks to the Sundogs, and until we get a chance to do this again, adios.